Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I usually pull in a guest, but in honor of the one-year anniversary of this podcast, I'm going solo today. I launched this podcast in January of 2023 with the goal of helping college leaders find new ways to become viable. I'm particularly interested in the how of higher ed business and operations. In the 27 previous episodes, I've pulled in business leaders as well as college leaders to share their top lessons for college viability and affordability. If this is your first episode, welcome. And if you've been with me for a while, thank you. It's because of you that I continue to do this podcast. Well, and because I'm having a blast, and that's always my goal. Today, I'm going to share my lesson on college viability and affordability, which relates to protecting the product. What do I mean by that? When I say product, I mean the educational curriculum and services offered in higher ed. This includes all the credentials that we sell. So take the bachelor's degree, for example, plus the wraparound support services such as advising and all the business operations that are needed. Higher ed sells credentials. Those credentials need functional support services. When a college starts to chip away at the resources for those products and services, the quality starts to suffer and it can create this negative cascading effect quickly. I'm going to unpack all of this today. I want to start with a trend that troubles me and really affects the product of education. Lately, I experienced personally, and I've also heard about it from others, and that's the significant reduction of professional development funds for both faculty and staff. I'm going to be using the term professional development to indicate any structured professional learning that results in changes and improvements to what we do in higher ed. Most often, I'm going to focus today on the creation and dissemination of research and best practices in higher ed, such as the kind that happens often at conferences. And I've adapted my description from the Learning Policy Institute's definition. Professional development has gone by the wayside lately. On paper, professional development funds may appear ancillary to the product. Development funds, they have a separate budget line item, maybe out of academics or HR. Maybe it looks like a nicety or an indulgence that's only possible when finances are good. But in times of financial shortfalls, we got to cut stuff, and I do understand that. But in reality, professional development is essential to maintaining the quality of the educational product itself. The downward spiral starts when colleges reduce professional development funds. The quality of the educational product suffers at five different levels. Faculty are that first level. Faculty rely on professional development funds to sponsor their research and the publications or presentations related to that research. R1 schools, they're going to place an emphasis on grant funding for research, which has become very common practice at R1s. That, in effect, forces faculty to identify their own funding, but it's a commonly accepted practice. But what about at the non-research-heavy schools? Grants are much less likely for many reasons. And without the funds to support the research itself, plus the conference costs to present the research, the burden shifts to faculty to self-fund those types of research activities. I personally had this experience about a year ago. 
my research was accepted for a conference at NYU, which I did fall in love with the NYU campus. It's amazing. I was accepted by a higher ed leadership association. And then I was granted approval by my institution for funding about six months prior to the conference itself. But here's what happened. By the time I returned from the conference, then I submitted all my reimbursement forms. The professional development funds had dried up for the year. I was told, sorry, too bad. It was too expensive of a conference after all. And they only partially funded the conference. And I was forced to pay out of my pocket for a portion of the total expenses. Remind you, this was even though I'd been pre-approved. And in addition to that, as many faculty contracts are set up, my employment contract actually required a significant portion of my workload assigned to research and scholarship. So I was contractually obligated to do research. In fact, if I had not published my research during that academic year, my faculty contract could have been in jeopardy the following year. And I know this is a common story because I've spoken to many people about it. Faculty were required to do research and scholarship, but then the resources themselves are not available. I don't even know how that works. What about faculty in the assistant or associate ranks who are working toward promotion and tenure? Research is one of or the most significant element of an academic portfolio. Faculty cannot progress on an individual level without that research. Additionally, the in-class learning and the student outcomes are reduced as well if faculty are not active in their own research. Truly, the curriculum is just not as strong when faculty are not active in their discipline. Faculty research funnels directly into the curriculum and what happens inside that classroom. And if faculty are conducting less research, that means student research becomes more limited too. That brings us to our second level, and that's students. As I said, if faculty are conducting less research, so are students. Now, if there's less research all around, students are less prepared for graduate school, they're less prepared for their future professions, they have fewer lines on their resume. And think about the students who have aspirations of becoming faculty themselves one day. They won't have that early undergraduate research experience or graduate school experience. They don't have the knowledge creation. They don't have the publications. And they surely missed out on the faculty mentorship that comes with student faculty research. There's another downside, an obvious one. The lack of faculty research leads to a lack of new knowledge creation and a lack of innovation. Without knowledge creation, our world is not better off. And that's the third level, the community level. I think of all the science breakthroughs for the medical community and the fascinating social science discoveries necessary to understanding human life. The R1s come to mind for sure, but also some of the mid-sized and smaller schools that have historically valued research for the sake of knowledge creation. This leads to the fourth level, and that's at the institutional level. The school's brand reputation suffers. A school without active faculty research projects are less well-known in the public, and they contribute less overall to the community with respect to content. Any college worth its salt needs to be a part of producing research. And that brings us to the fifth and final level, staff. It could be easy to overlook staff in this conversation, but like faculty, they do need research, although for some different reasons. They need it for their own skill development, especially in an evolving industry such as higher education. I think about all the federal regulations alone that require new upskilling all the time. Staff also need to get up to speed on new requirements and best practices. I see research related to student outcomes very common. 
For example, I recently brought on a retention expert on the show to talk about successful metrics based on his own research and his own best practices. And I met him at a conference last fall. He had discovered some really novel ways to help retain and serve students. Without the research and best practices shared with each other, not to mention the networking that happens at conferences, it's reasonable to conclude that we aren't serving our students at the highest level possible. The quality of our services is suffering. Think about the academic advisors out there, right? They're in the front lines. They're in student-facing roles each and every day. And then I also think about our student affairs practitioners. Right now, they're living and breathing mental health and accessibility issues. I want those student affairs people to be on top of and leading the latest research on mental health and accessibility so they can support our students fully, so they can educate faculty on what's legally required, where can we help them better too. Student affairs is already being hit hard with the burnout due to a lack of resources. According to College and University Professionals Association, HR, 37% of student affairs employees are looking to leave right now. So that's a third of them or more. They want to go. They don't want to be in student affairs anymore because there's such a burnout and lack of resources. And then I think about our admissions teams. Well, apparently none of us have retained to those folks because 71% of coordinators and counselors in admissions have been in their jobs for three years or less. So none of them are staying. There's a number of reasons cited for them leaving, and among them are burnout and a lack of resources. We've seen how quickly the millennials and Gen Zers are leaving higher ed workforce. They are dissatisfied. They are disengaged. And that becomes a culture problem when people leave in droves. A 2022 article from Real Clear Education Online stated it this way. The Great Resignation has taught us that workers are placing more value on flexible work arrangements and comprehensive benefits, including training and development opportunities. Now, training and development could mean being the receivers of knowledge, right? I'm attending a webinar or I'm going to a conference to learn something. But it also means they become the producers and disseminators of this new knowledge. It's also my personal belief that staff also really crave research and learning on a personal level. I think it's like what's probably attracted them to higher ed in the first place. I mean, who isn't energized? You show up to a conference, learn from the best, share your expertise with a captivated audience, and then you also meet some really super interesting, accomplished counterparts. So conferences become a way to fill our cup, and then we can bring back those fresh ideas and even that new energy that we got at that conference back to our own workplace. All right, just to recap those five levels where the product suffers due to a lack of professional development, and they are faculty level, students, community, institutional, and staff. So I guess I'm including everyone and everything. And that's the problem, but I'm not going to leave you hanging. Don't worry. I'm solution-oriented, so stay with me. Employees who get professional development opportunities are 15% more engaged and have a 34% higher retention rate, according to Better Buys. We can see this as a business problem because disengagement and turnover are incredibly expensive. So how can we protect the product via attracting and retaining top talent in higher ed? I've got a few ideas to share, some directly related to professional development and even a few beyond that. Well, let's start with professional development. Both faculty and staff need access to funds, both faculty and staff. I'm all in favor of an application system for people to have to apply for funds. Maybe it's just not granted automatically. Maybe you have to work for it a little bit. Okay, fair enough. 
Maybe even you ask that their research leads to new practical applications or conference presentations or publications. Perhaps any of those high-priced development opportunities, such as those conferences, maybe they also need to have a requirement that the employees come back to the school and they share their learnings with the school. Or maybe they have to verify that whatever they're going to learn at this conference is connected directly to student outcomes. You could say retention or graduation or any other student outcomes. Or maybe you have the faculty and staff connect their learnings to a strategic plan initiative. What's not currently being addressed by the university, but we all said we were going to do it. Maybe this person can go to this conference or attend this webinar and actually find some answers. And if you're really going to take professional development seriously, you have to build in the time into employees' schedules. I'll argue that many faculty probably have a percentage of their load dedicated to research and development. But what about staff? I'm getting a guess that that's a rare scenario. So it's not just about the monetary funding, but also some time in their schedule to actually go out and learn. We know there's other professional development opportunities. You could bring in a good speaker for in-service days. So when you have a big audience and you're only paying for one speaker, that's a pretty good ROI, especially if they have an area of expertise that really is needed on your campus, so something really timely. I have higher ed clients through my consulting business, and they ask me to present on timely topics to their groups. I have groups anywhere from 15 to a few hundred. And between my areas of research, my 22 years in higher ed, and a background in communication and business, I've got a lot of things to say. So my focus is on communication-based leadership skills, and I have many targeted applications for higher ed. So I think I'm doing pretty good work when I go into these audiences of faculty and or staff And we talk about something that they need. If it's relevant, modern, thoughtful, interactive, I can see some really good results. Okay, beyond professional development, the research is clear. Employers have to allow for remote and hybrid work arrangements when possible. Even for employees who have student-facing roles, the academic calendar is such that it does allow for natural off-site times and some flexibility. Take long breaks, right? Winter and summer. Of course, they're going to be more flexible because oftentimes we don't have students on campus during those times. Or maybe there's a way for employees to schedule remote work on the two days per week they don't actually need to be sitting in their office. Sometimes I spend an entire day where I'm just in my office and I'm on Teams all day. I'm sure we all have employees in that same boat. Why are we making them come into the office if they are sitting there all day on Teams? I did write the prologue for the 2023 book titled Rethinking Hybrid and Remote Work in Higher Education, and that book shares a number of perspectives from around the world on how employees in higher ed are rethinking the nature of our work and whether or not it can be accomplished hybrid and remote formats. Spoiler alert, it does. And I'll link that book in the show notes in case you want to read more about that. All right, my last idea on this is going to be controversial. And if I have any budget managers out there who are in a financial crunch right now, warning to you, you may want to fast forward the next few seconds. Okay, here's what I think. I believe faculty and staff should be compensated at the 75% of the salary range for their jobs in their regions. I don't want to include peer institutions as the benchmark for that range because the peer institutions are probably just as broken as you. I want you to include those aspirational schools where they pay really nice 
And I want that target to be at 75%. So here's an example. Say the average academic advisor is paid between, in your area, $40,000 to $60,000 per year as their base compensation, not including benefits. So say that we have that range of forty to sixty. I want that base salary for the advisor to start at right around $55,000 so we can hit that 75% mark. See, if I only paid them $50,000, that'd be at the 50% range and therefore average. You're not going to keep your best people for an average salary. I think we should pay these folks what it takes to provide really quality services, whether it's advising or in another support area. And if you're not already including tuition reimbursement as a benefit for those support services people, please include that. Okay, budget managers, you can stop fast forwarding. I'm about to give you some ideas. Let me walk through the tiers of cost to you first, and then I'll get to the funding. I'm going to break it into three tiers. We've got the lower no-cost tier. That's for our schools that are really struggling and the money just absolutely is not there. The middle price tier for those that think they can stretch a little bit. And then the high-cost tier. That's where the most money has to come from, but you also see the highest return. The no and low-cost benefits include in-house mentoring and shadowing. Remember, you've hired really well. You've paid these people at the 75% mark. And so since you're paying these great people and they're high performers, turn around and have them build the skills of others. Tuition reimbursement, that's also low or no cost even if your operating model accounts for it, right? You can simply cap the max number of employees in any given class and their program. You can also require employees to stay on for a few years after their degree is completed. Theoretically, remote and hybrid work doesn't cost anything either. You might be worried about what you're going to do with all those empty spaces and offices, but that's not a reason to disallow it. In fact, I'd argue that's an opportunity to re-envision how the campus facilities are being used at their highest and best value. Maybe you can even lease out those empty offices or even consolidate spaces and sell off some of the older buildings. Maybe it's win-win. All right, moving on to the middle price tier. I recommend finding really good speakers and workshop facilitators as experts in the area you desperately need right now. The experts can present and facilitate virtually if you're open to that format. It also can save on speaker expenses. And the final high price tier. High cost efforts usually lead to greater ROI. And I've already proposed paying people at the 75% rate because I think it's better for the organization's long term to hire well and pay well. Hire the stars. The stars do all the best work and they stay longer if they feel valued. Another high-cost, high-return benefit is individual research and conference funding, as we've been talking about from the beginning. Again, this is the product. We have to protect our product. That is part of our educational service and product. If faculty and staff are not producing new knowledge and sharing it with their students and community, they're not really in the learning business. Okay, well, how do we fund all these? Well, like, it could be pretty simple, actually. Professional Development Fund looks like it's just money out the door, but actually it saves you money long-term because you're going to have fewer turnovers and you're going to have higher performance of those that are there. So you actually save money long-term because there's continuous employment and higher productivity. The cost to replace an employee is about 33% of their annual salary, according to Tara's staffing group. If we take an employee who's making, say, $60,000, 
it's going to cost more than $20,000 to replace this great person. And you have the loss of work itself, which is even harder to quantify, but incredibly expensive. Well, more, probably more than $20,000. And more importantly, you have a quality product that has benefited from growth and best practices. You're going to have higher output. Also, imagine if HR wasn't always bogged down with job postings, application funnels, search committees, new hire paperwork, onboarding, the list goes on. That's a lot of human capital dollars that doesn't need to be spent if the people that you hire stay. So those are some ideas for how to provide professional development. And the funding for them will come in the form of long-term savings via continuous employment of the top talent. I want to end this episode with an analogy. I like food a lot, so I'm going to go ahead and compare a nonprofit college to an independent, non-chain restaurant. Think of the really cozy, small, wonderful restaurant that you love to go to. This restaurant really wants to be the best in the area. Maybe even aspirations of being recognized nationally through awards. The owner and the general manager, they take great care. They hire the best executive and sous chefs they can find. The owner and the GM, they know that without the best food, the restaurant doesn't have a stand a chance. People come for the food, right? And awards are only given when the food is top notch. Customers have to perceive value in that food because the owner and the GM have priced the food high. They know the food has to be original, modern, maybe even a little bougie. The chefs are given all the resources they need. They've got expensive equipment. They have a budget to buy the freshest ingredients. And you know who the chefs are in this college, aren't you? The chefs are the equivalent to faculty, right? They're making that product. People come for the food at a restaurant, but that's not where the real ROI is. The real ROI in a restaurant is the liquor and wine sales. So the owner and the GM, recognizing where they're going to get some more cash influx, they hire Bobby the bartender. Bobby's okay. He's a little green, shows great potential, and quite frankly, he was one of only a few that actually applied for this low-paying position with crummy hours of nights and weekends. So the owner and the GM, they decide that while Bobby is acceptable for now, they need to get him up to speed. He needs to be better for the sake of the restaurant. The chefs are starting to do an amazing job with the food, but the cocktails, the wine list, it doesn't measure up. So they send Bobby off to Italy, France, Portugal to learn all about wines, mixology. Bobby, come back with a new cocktail and wine list. It was pretty expensive to send Bobby on this boondoggle. But Bobby comes back, and guess what happens? He starts upselling all the customers. Now the customers are buying very expensive bottles of wine, and they're buying these super bougie expensive cocktails. They also had to change Bobby's name tag to read Robert, because Robert fits in better with this restaurant now. So who is Bobby? He's our advancement office. He had to up his skill set to fundraise for that endowment, and now everybody wins. The cash is flowing. I hope you enjoyed that analogy and got the point that it takes ongoing resources invested in key people to elevate the product. I firmly believe that higher ed must not chip away at the product by reducing professional development funds, but continue to invest in them. Bring back our professional development funds. Our product is our education, but the education will suffer if the quality is not maintained. Thank you. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.